is a battle going on today for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for America Can We Talk with Debbie George Addis. On America Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. America Can We Talk starts now. Good evening and welcome. I'm Debbie George Addis. Welcome to my show. This morning I turned on the television early and it happened to be on CNN and they were having a roundtable. Jake Tapper was leading it and there were five people. The brilliant Senator Jim DeMint was there making actually cogent, intelligent arguments. But one of the people in the panel was a young man, and I'm sorry I don't know his name, but he's a big liberal. And the entire portion of what he said that I heard before I couldn't stand it anymore was in about 17 sentences repeating the one same point, which was... He demands, and he thinks everyone should demand, that President Trump apologize to our former president for having implied that there was surveillance occurring at the Trump Tower. And this young man was apoplectic about the idea that there simply must be an apology. And this message is coming not just from CNN, but New York Times and other left-wing non-journalistic news outlets that simply are advocating against President Trump. And I'm going to dedicate my first five tonight to talking about the double standard in the media and why President Trump should not issue an apology, regardless of the outcome of the hearings this coming week and the information that's going to be presented to the House Intelligence Committee. And my main argument, you know, I've talked in the show before, there's a lot of talk in America about the idea of fake news, but this goes beyond fake news. And my term I like to use is sabotage media. And what I mean by that is sabotage media means putting out fake news for a sinister purpose. It is the purpose to absolutely bring down President Trump, or at least to render him ineffective. I'm going to hit on just a few examples of when, if the media were actually honest and implying anything close to an objective standard, they might have called for apologies but didn't. Number one, President Obama said at least 37 times it can be counted. If you like your insurance, you can keep it. He said that when he was pushing Obamacare. It's important to understand that there were regulations issued in the Federal Register, published in the Federal Register in July of 2010, that were the result of research occurring during the time Obamacare was being drafted and researched and debated that admitted that the federal government, President Obama and his team, were well aware that the regulations they were putting in place were going to cause up to 67% of Americans to lose the health insurance they had. They knew they were writing something that did not comply, that that 67% of Americans' policies would not meet the standard of Obamacare. So when President Obama said this, and his team repeated it over and over and over, if you like your insurance, you can keep it, it wasn't just a factually incorrect statement. It was a misleading, intentionally misleading statement designed to get people to sign on to Obamacare and support him because he wanted socialized medicine and he wasn't willing to tell the American people the truth. I Googled pretty thoroughly, could not find a demand for an apology from CNN or New York Times or any other liberal outlet about that. Number two, you may recall the Fast and Furious scandal, which was essentially the Bureau of alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, which is overseen by, at that time, Eric Holder's Department of Justice, allowing straw purchasers working from Mexican cartels to illegally buy thousands of firearms at U.S. gun shops and then shuttle those guns down to the Mexican border and into, into Mexico. One of those guns was found, in fact, more one of those than one was found, at the scene in which Border Patrol agent Brian Terry was killed in December of 2010, 
in Rico Valley, Arizona. This gun running was an illegal operation to start with. It was designed to humiliate and therefore eventually regulate the gun industry. I, again, could not find one piece of, of any piece of journalism, any statement by anyone, CNN, New York Times, that President Obama should apologize for the actual death of an American citizen caused by a policy, at least at his uh, agency, if he in not particular, authorized. Number three, the IRS targeting the uh, Tea Parties and other conservative organizations in this country. The IRS scandal targeting Tea Parties and conservative groups who are trying to get 501c3 or c4 certification from the IRS ultimately was the weaponization of a taxpayer-funded federal agency used to attack political enemies. Lois Lerner, head of that agency, did, you know, she whiffed, she lied, she did a quasi-admission, she took the fifth, and she retired with a full pension. No demand I could find anywhere that President Obama apologized for the conduct of his IRS targeting political opponents. Releasing killer uh, people from Gitmo, President Obama has released many of the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay, and they have returned to engage in fighting on behalf of ISIS and other Islamic terrorists against American citizens. One was Mullah Abdul Raouf, who actually was released by President Obama from Gitmo and turned around and established the first ISIS base in Afghanistan. Also, the release of many prisoners, or the uh, failure to have a, an effective immigration policy, surrendering the border, letting people who have been convicted felons uh, simply escape and never, never follow through on deportation. This was, again, something CNN, New York Times, all liberal outlets, they never demanded an apology or accountability from President Obama. And the reason I say all that is this. President Trump will accomplish nothing if he were to apologize, no matter what the outcome is of the hearings and what the outcome of whether we're surveillance or not. Because the goal of the media is not to get an apology. It is to humiliate President Trump. And if he does that, they will run that tape before every single press conference President Trump does for the next four years. My guess is he's way too smart to do it, but I want you to see this request for an apology, not as just simply a journalistic kind of attention getter. It is sabotage media. Don't be duped. And when we get back from the break, I'm going to tell you the latest on the FISA and surveillance. Don't go away. Debbie Georgiatis, America. Hear me talk. On August 2nd, 2006, Debbie Lee was notified that her son, Mark Allen Lee, had been killed, becoming the first Navy SEAL to lose his life in Iraq. She had no choice about the news that was given to her, but she did have a choice how she responded. In response to her son's amazing last letter, she founded America's Mighty Warriors to honor the sacrifices of our troops, the fallen, and their families by providing programs that improve quality of life, resiliency, and recovery. Whether America's Mighty Warriors is hosting retreats for families of the fallen, helping heroes heal who are struggling with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, providing relaxation at the Heroes Hope Home, stepping in when an injustice is committed, or doing random acts of kindness. As Mark mentioned in his letter, they know the price of freedom and who pays it. Our troops and families of the fallen need your support. Visit americasmightywarriors.org today to learn more. That's americasmightywarriors.org. There's a lot of talk today among media, in academia, in our culture, about everything that is supposedly wrong with America. Political correctness tries to dictate that we must stop thinking that America is exceptional. America's bravest have our back in the air, at sea, and on land. But who has America's back in the culture? 
in schools, on cable television, in newspapers, it's time to end the greatest prejudice on earth, anti-Americanism. And who makes the case for America? Flag does. Flag is the foundation for liberty and American greatness. Flag has America's back on the cultural battlefield. Flag is a nonprofit battle tank working to change the cultural and media narrative about America. If you think it's time to stand up for America, join the Foundation for Liberty and American Greatness. Your support of Flag is an investment in the America your children will inherit. Visit their website at flagusa.org and consider donating. All donations are 100% tax deductible. That's flagusa.org. Our nation faces a choice, the path of big government based out of Washington or the unique brand of liberty and prosperity enjoyed here in Texas. For 27 years, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has helped leaders in the Lone Star State prove that fiscal restraint and small government can deliver opportunity and prosperity for all. The Texas Public Policy Foundation promotes and defends solutions here and around the country based on liberty, free enterprise, and personal responsibility, whether in Forming the national debate on property rights, energy, taxes, education, or criminal justice, the foundation works to translate ideas into real change. The Texas Public Policy Foundation does not accept government funds or contributions to influence the outcome of its research. It is supported by thousands of people like you who are concerned about the future of our country. You can help Texas remain strong as the beacon of liberty in America. Visit TexasPolicy.com to learn more. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility when politicians propose solutions to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues. But even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie George Addis. I'm so happy you've tuned in. My first five tonight, I was talking about the importance of recognizing political motivation behind the effort of the Democrats to demand that um, President Trump issue some apology related to this uh, FISA surveillance stuff and the tweets that he put out. And I just can't encourage you strongly enough to think of these This is not an earnest request for an apology. This is an effort to find a way to humiliate him, and they would use that apology over and over and over, not just that one, but it would embolden them for the next 17 apologies they will ask for. And so this is why, and I think President Trump knows this, but I do want to turn to the issue that is kind of the underlying issue we were talking about, which relates to the the, uh, Russians. Let's call it the big Russian story. I think there's a just a 
just deliciously funny aspect of this that is coming out this week, and that is this. During the elections, there was uh, obviously a lot of talk about whether or not the Russians had hacked in and were the ones who were actually exposing Hillary Clinton and John Podesta and other people's emails. And it appears, I mean, I, I'm, I'm no spy. It appears that it was they. I don't know who it was. But say, say it was the Russians, and we agree it was. But the consequence was that, you know, what America saw was a lot about Hillary Clinton that she happily would hide from people uh, given the opportunity. She was not interested in the content of those emails being out in the public. But what the, the uh, Democrats tried to do was to tie in the idea that it wasn't just that the Russians hacked in, but that somehow the Trump campaign was colluding with the Russians or somehow in the middle of it all or somebody connected to Trump is probably working with somebody in Russia. All these suspicions were put out there. And so this, these suspicions have been put out not just by uh, elected Democrats, who are certainly part of the problem, but by the media, too, this constant kind of probably something there, you know, some kind of collusion by Donald Trump. So this is in part, I mean, it's a two-pronged thing here. In part, it's what gave rise to the suspicion among many on the conservative side that the Obama administration trying to look into whether or not Russia hacked the elections, and since they were claiming that Trump was part of this hacking, you know, was the Obama administration kind of checking to see what Trump was up to? And then, but the other aspect, the one I want to hit first is this, and that is the Democrats have built up an unhealthy and unrealistic expectation in millions of Americans that by the time the Congress has finished investigating the Russian involvement in this, uh, you know, the supposed Russian involvement in the election, that we're going to have, you know, rock solid evidence and Trump was in the middle of it and he's going down. And okay, this, it, I just love the headline. Here's a headline. Key Democratic officials now warning the base not to expect evidence of Trump-Russia collusion. And these are key players trying, they're, they're trying to go out there and trying to like, you know, break the ice a little bit for the voters who got duped into thinking that somehow Trump was colluding with the Russians, saying, hey, actually, not so fast. There's actually nothing to this. We've investigated, we've dug, we've invested. There's nothing to it. And so they're, tr- they're trying to prepare their base because their base is just expecting a... Um, a just, uh, you know, kind of a, a discovery of some wildly, um, you know, condemning, uh, damning evidence. And then, therefore, you know, the end of Trump or, or Trump is humiliated. It's not there because it didn't happen. The Democrats is now dawning on Democrats. But the second thing I want to mention about it was that the whole narrative of how much the Republicans uh, may have had help from the Russians in this election is also kind of falling apart. I mean, the Russians... If they were the ones who hacked in and put out emails, okay, it didn't change the outcome. And this is also dawning on Democrat leaders that actually their problem was an extremely faulty, dislikable candidate and being completely out of touch with the American people. That's why they lost. And this is now dawning on the Democrats. They're they're trying to deal with, in fact, their choice of a new party chair was in part talking about, hey, we got to remind the masses, you know, the people in the uh, base in America, um, you know, why Democrats are so great because they seem to have forgotten. I, I think their problem is that the Americans finally got tuned in to the problems the Democrats create through their policies, and they don't like it. But anyway, so that's one aspect of the Russian. But the other thing on the Russian thing I want to try to talk about, you know, and I did, I think two weeks ago, we talked about this whole FISA court and whether or not there were, um, there was um, some kind of surveillance authorized by the FISA court against, um, by, not by President Obama personally, but by someone in the administration, you know, in the NSA or some other entity that has authority. I want to just say before 
before I, you know, everyone knows the sequence, I think, that Donald Trump put out a tweet. And his first tweet in this subject uh, was on March 4th. It was an early Saturday morning. He put out a tweet that essentially said, um, terrible. I just found out that Obama had my, quote, wires tapped, close quote, in Trump Tower just before the victory. Nothing found. This is McCarthyism. So Trump starts this on March 4th. And there were a series of other things. And since then, the administration has tried to say, well, we didn't mean necessarily mean wires tap like the old-fashioned wire tap. We just meant surveillance. And we didn't necessarily mean just Trump's phone or just anyone's phone. It could have been computers. It could have been surveillance. They keep trying to say, you know, Trump spoke in a, shockingly, a rash and imprecise way. And so people thought it was easy for the Democrats to say, President Obama didn't go over Trump Tower and, and tap his phones. Therefore, the whole thing's a lie. But obviously... The Republicans are, are trying to say, no, we're talking about surveillance. And this is where it gets sticky for the Democrats, because they admit that they thought that the Russians were up to something and they kind of thought Trump was involved. And so the idea they were trying to figure that out is, is hardly far-fetched. But I want to tell you, before, even before that March 4th, a couple of things you might not have realized. There were articles, and the reason this in part got going in Donald Trump's um, worldview um, were articles that appeared much previous to this March 4th that talked about surveillance and the outcome of surveillance and what the surveillance was. One was from the New York Times on January 19th. So this is long before March 4th, January 19th. New York Times came out with a story in which they referred to unnamed U.S. officials. So that's always, you know, they're not going to name them. Unnamed U.S. officials. And their, their quote was, American law enforcement and intelligence agencies are examining intercepted communications and financial trans- transactions as part of a broad investigation into possible links between Russian officials and associates of President-elect Donald Trump. Okay, you have to know New York Times was gleeful to run this story in January. They ran another one on March 1st, again before Trump's tweet. March 1st, New York Times runs, the FBI is conducting a wide-ranging counterintelligence investigation into Russia's meddling in the election and is examining alleged links between Mr. Trump's associates and the Russian government. Okay, so these stories precede the Trump, the tweet by Trump. And, and then, of course, after Trump did that one tweet, did many, many more. But the point is that there were credible sources who, you know, happily carry water for President Obama and everybody in the American left. At this point, their goal was to stir up suspicion, to make people think, well, there sure is probably something really evil and untoward and wrong. But at the end of the day... You know, they're, they're, they are acknowledging and, you know, they, they um, were acknowledging there was some kind of surveillance, their terms, counterintelligence investigation, um, counterintelligence probe. So, you know, Trump comes out and says, hey, what, what are you talking about? I mean, am I getting wiretap? As again, he didn't say in the most eloquent way possible. But the end of the story, why I'm saying all this is so now where we are is people trying to and there were stories also run by very credible news sources. In fact, I had the amazing pleasure of meeting Andrew McCarthy, who is a brilliant writer at the National Review. And I was at the National Review conference in Washington this past week. Andrew McCarthy was there. Just such a nice guy and really gave me a lengthy interview to play a little bit later uh, today and other times in future shows. But, you know, we were talking about how there were stories out in early January, stories in National Review by David French and others commenting about it seems as though the FISA court, which is supposed to be foreign intelligence surveillance, surveillance of the A's agency or something, whatever it is. The point is there were stories in early January that FISA had from, you know, unnamed sources, high the administration, were looking at a warrant or looking at a way to tap in information and, again, related to this narrative that the Democrats created. 
The Democrats liked the narrative to start with. It somehow Trump was all mixed in with the Russians. So there's a, a an article. We'll put it up on our, our website later, AmericaCanWeTalk.org, and on my Facebook, very active Facebook page, America Can We Talk. Because at the end of the day, what um, Andrew McCarthy concluded is, where does FISAgate end up? Probably nowhere. And it's a very lengthy article in which he basically makes the point, look, the Democrats, of course they were looking into things. They've admitted they were looking into things. And if you just ignore the precise words chosen by the president in his, in his tweets, the reality is they were trying to fish around. He said also there's he uh, two things, Andrew McCarthy, who, by the way, beside being a brilliant writer, he is a, was a former U.S. attorney. He was a prosecutor, the blind sheikh. The guy knows everything about Islam you could imagine. And he's just a brilliant writer and thinker and, and knows about the court system. We talked about two other aspects of this very quickly because we're almost coming to our break here. But he talked about how the um, when you want to surveil someone, you know, you can uh, – you don't necessarily have to go to FISA. You, it depends who it is. What, you could go to just a regular judge and say we have reason to surveil. And if you're dying to get the communications of somebody and you don't really – have the grounds for that person, you can't ask for surveillance of someone you know or you think they're talking to. So you're going to pick up the, the uh, statements by the person you really want to get without ever having to be justified by a warrant. I'll tell you something else that this is kind of my ending shot on why Trump needs to just stand strong on this, is that somebody within some federal security agency turned over the, the conversation between Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, the term is unmasked, they turned over his name to the... Um, to people within uh, authority who end up putting it out there in the press. So this is not the case where there's nothing to it. Okay, we got. I could go on for two hours about this, but come back after the break. We have Chip Roy going to talk to us about the latest on the Obamacare non-repeal. Great expert. You don't want to miss this. Don't go away. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are tens of thousands of Heritage members and supporters in North Texas alone. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates on the fight for America from Heritage President Jim DeMint, plus exclusive invitations to conservative events right here in Dallas or wherever you are in America. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. Texans have a long tradition of independence, and we don't like being told what to do, especially by liberal bureaucrats 1,000 miles away. That's why for 30 years, the Dallas-based Institute for Policy Innovation has fought Washington's efforts to take more of your money and freedom. IPI works every day to keep taxes low and freedom high, to promote free market health care, expand energy security, protect intellectual property, and combat onerous regulations that destroy American jobs. Politicians often talk smaller government, but then vote for more of it. By contrast, IPI has never veered from its mission to defend the Constitution and fight for freedom. If you want to be informed about free market policies and solutions, go to IPI's website and sign up. All of their information is free for sharing. 
Help IPI restore liberty and economic growth. Go to IPI.org today. That's IPI.org. One more time, go to IPI.org today. America guarantees each eligible adult citizen the right to vote. The Public Interest Legal Foundation, a 501c3 public interest law firm, is dedicated entirely to election integrity, to assuring that voter rolls include names of only citizens eligible to vote, and that protections are in place to prevent voter fraud of all kinds. The Public Interest Legal Foundation discovered that more than 1,000 non-citizens enrolled to vote in Virginia in just eight counties. And in Philadelphia, felons as well as non-citizens are on the voter rolls. Non-citizens have been registering to vote and voting. The Public Interest Legal Foundation is fighting nationwide and in Texas to ensure that only Americans pick American leaders. We are actively litigating high-impact cases to clean up voter rolls and protect the ballot box. If you do not want your vote canceled out, visit publicinterestlegal.org to join us in the fight to restore integrity to American elections. Protect your vote. Visit publicinterestlegal.org today. If you want to get at the issues that really matter for women and men, Go to IWF.org. That's the Independent Women's Forum. IWF is all about increasing the number of American women who value free markets and personal liberty. IWF's motto is all issues are women's issues. They bring a fact-based approach to politics, policy, and culture. When the left tried to peddle a phony war on women, IWF shot back with facts and figures. American women aren't victims in need of ever-increasing government protection. And IWF doesn't think things are perfect, but they believe that individual liberty is the key to prosperity and fulfillment. Along with their sister organization, Independent Women's Voice, IWVoice.org, which is a leader in the fight against Obamacare, they offer policy papers, op-eds, and a popular blog on issues of the day. So visit IWF at IWF.org. That's IWF.org. Can you hear us now? Can you hear us now? And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. And my second hour roundtable happily is already here with me. And they're going to chime in, I hope, in this upcoming interview. I have Lori Medina. I've been here many times. And we also have Kirby Anderson, who is a great friend. He is a first-timer, I guess second time on our roundtable. I think when I first started doing the show, he joined us. And then he's actually, I will quickly tell you, he's the host of Point of View Radio, where I am uh, blessed every time I'm invited to join the Friday afternoon roundtable. So, hi, Kirby. Hey, well, hello. Good hi, to be Kirby. with you. I came here to kind of learn a little bit more about how to do a talk show. So, thank you so <laughs> oh, much. Oh, yeah, right. Kirby, Kirby <laughs> is legendary. Oh, legendary. Legend- like 20, I don't know how many years. Yes. I, maybe you want me to say so that. We are privileged yeah. to have you. Thank 30 you for coming. 30 what? 30 years. 30 years on radio, and he's only 29. It's so weird. Okay, (laughs) and we have online uh, Chip Roy. I believe we have you. Hi, Chip. Good evening. How are you guys? We are very well, and we're happy to have you online. I'll quickly tell our listeners. uh, Chip Roy uh, has had many amazingly interesting jobs. He is currently with the Texas Public Policy Foundation as the director of the Center for Tenth Amendment Action. Um, But previous to that, he has worked um, as a... um, First attorney, assistant attorney general of Texas. He's as works of chief of staff to the great Senator Ted Cruz, senior advisor of Texas Governor Rick Perry. The reason Chip Roy is so great to have on the show is because he's really aware of both the substance on of many policy issues as well as the kind of inner workings of Washington and Austin. So um, with that build up, the reason I wanted to have you on, Chip, was 
you were uh, you're very familiar with. You've written brilliantly about the health care uh, mess we are in, the effort to repeal Obamacare, and I'm hoping you can just tell our listeners why are conservatives upset with the Ryan Care bill or the or the bill that is the the attempt to repeal Obamacare in Washington these days. Sure. Of course, with that buildup and all those jobs in Washington, I'm not sure how much your listeners would actually want to listen to me. Um, I, I promise, and hopefully Lori can attest, that, I, that I've not been corrupted by the city, and I'm happily in Austin now, although that has its own level of, of problem. Um, but look, I, you know, uh, here's the, the short version, and, and we can get into the detail as much as you want. Um, there isn't much distinction at the end of the day between health care the healthcare system after Ryan Care or before Ryan Care. In other words, the, the difference in the, between Obamacare and where Ryan Care would take us is not really that significant. Let's think about what Obamacare actually is. For all of our, you know, railing on it over the last eight years, what are the drivers of our concern? It is a bill that expanded Medicaid significantly. Mm-hmm. It is a or a law, I should say, that expanded Medicaid significantly. It is a law that gave us significant regulations that drove up costs. It is a law that created a new subsidy for the government to to give to Americans to pay for parts of Obamacare. And it's a law that had a a mandate to go buy insurance, an individual mandate and an employer mandate to force certain size companies to provide it, right? That is basically the guts of Obamacare. So now what do we have if Ryan Care were to be enacted or GOP care, whatever you want to call it, uh, the, the Republican Rhino plan. care, Rhino care, yeah. There you go. What uh, what would we have then? We're going to have Medicaid remains expanded. Yes, it gets reformed, and there are some good reforms in there. I'm not going to give credit where it's due. There are some good reforms that would devolve some of the power to the states, and uh, these per capita caps offer some positive benefits. But there's some good reforms. But basically, the expanded Medicaid population stays in place. And oh, by the way. The freeze of the Medicaid population expansion doesn't occur for three years, causing a rush into the system over the next three years, and leaves in the able-bodied expansion in perpetuity. And that's the fundamental problem with it. You've got all of these able-bodied folks that have been crammed into Medicaid to drive up the Obamacare coverage numbers. So that's Medicaid. The regulations that drove up all the costs stay in place. This bill does nothing to repeal virtually any of the regulations. By that, I mean the pre-existing conditions requirement, and I'm happy to talk about that because we're obviously concerned about people with pre-existing conditions. I'm a cancer survivor. That's right. I don't, I don't want to leave people with pre-existing conditions on the, on the side, but it's a problem in terms of the cost, the essential health mandates that go into the, to the Obamacare bill that drives up costs. These are the requirements that you cover individuals who have for maternity care or, or um, you know, other coverages. The fact that a 26-year-old can get insurance on their parents' insurance. All of these uh, regulations and requirements drive up our health care costs. All right? None of those have been repealed. So the Medicaid expansion stays in place. All of those regulations, for the most part, stay in place. And then the subsidy, yes, it is gotten rid of, but a brand-new non-refundable tax credit, i.e. a subsidy, a federal grant of dollars, is put in its place, again creating a direct entitlement uh, that will drive up the cost of health care and drive up the debt in the long run. So all of those things stay in place. Yes, the individual mandate and the employer mandate go away. And for liberty lovers, that's super, right? We don't want the federal government telling us 
what we have to buy and how we have to do it. However, if you take away the individual mandate but leave in place the regulations and leave in place a lot of the guts of Obamacare, you're, up, you're turning the economics of it upside down because all those healthy people might drop out of it, as the CBO is predicting. And even worse and more concerning, the CBO is projecting upwards of 7 million people might lose employer coverage. Why? Because the costs are still there. The requirements are still there because we're not getting rid of the regulations. But the employer mandate goes away. So what would a business naturally do if they're forced with increasing costs of health care? Well, they're going to scale back on how much they're going to provide health care coverage. Now, I just downloaded a lot. The short version is just go down a checklist. A refundable tax credit entitlement was there in Obamacare. It's there in Ryan Care. The they, uh, uh, federal bailouts, um, I'm sorry, the Medicaid expansion to able-bodied adults is there in Obamacare. It's there in Ryan Care. And then all of those uh, uh, essential health mandates and so forth, the pre-existing additions, the essential health benefits, uh, annual lifetime limits, all of those requirements stay in place. All of that drives up the cost of health care. I think that was an honestly brilliant summary. If you're just tuning in tonight, we're speaking with Chip Roy, who is uh, a policy expert on many issues. But tonight we were focusing specifically on the draft bill that I guess we're going to have a vote this coming Thursday in the House uh, for the uh, the alleged repeal of Obamacare. Well, Chip, I think I can't remember if I put this in a text to you or not, but this past week I was at a conference in Washington for the National Review Institute, and they just you know they had all sorts of interesting speakers, including um, Paul Ryan, and Honestly, um, what you just described, and I've written, and you've written brilliantly. I meant to mention for our listeners, uh, if you um, go to, uh, you can go to National Review. There's an article by Chip Roy, with whom we're speaking, called Repeal Obamacare. There's another article. These are on our uh, website, AmericaCanWeTalk.org, on our Facebook page. Another one, speaking of the potential to repeal Obamacare with only 51 senators. Um, So... Chip Roy has written extensively on this, but anyway, as that National Review, and honestly, when you hear Paul Ryan, the Democrats, and the Republicans selling this, they sound like they've practically repealed the whole thing. That, in fact, Paul Ryan made a comment about this is exactly what the Republicans always wanted. His other one was, it's a good example of the GOP learning to lead instead of being the opposition party. And I, I'm just politically, what is happening here? Are we just afraid to do the real thing? What's your sense of it? Well, I think that's a lot of it. I mean, my experience in Washington, if you go back to the defund effort that Senator Cruz led, and which I was obviously a part when I was his chief of staff in 2013, we kept being told, well, you know, this sounds all great, in, you know, Ted, but we can't do it because we don't have uh, the president in the White House, right? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, every excuse they've made about, well, we don't have 50. Well, now we have 50. Well, we don't have the president. Well, now we have the president. Well, now it's that we don't have 60, right? I mean, there's always the, the kick the can down the road. I think what's happening is you've got Republicans who are accepting the machinery of the Senate, the rules of the Senate, which are complex, as a easy excuse to not repeal the, the really, truly onerous cost-driving provisions of Obamacare. And the problem with that is that those costs, which drive up the cost, I'm sorry, those regulations that drive up the cost, if we don't get rid of those, we're going to uh, have the worst of both worlds, basically, right? You're going to unload you know, the mandate. You're going you're gonna to get to a situation where costs continue to go up, but we have coverages going down, and you're going to make it difficult for employers to provide the health care for people. I think what Republicans are doing is they're hiding behind Senate rules, and then they're telling us, trust us, right? We, we will 
do this part first, which is reform Medicaid, and then we will go out into the future. Just trust us. In a few months or whatever, uh, Tom Price is going to repeal these regulations through the administrative process and through the agency. And then we'll come back later and we'll fix some more of these laws in a different bill when we do more replacement. Now, my question for you is, A, have you ever seen that happen in Washington before? And B, if they can't repeal the regulations now with 51 – when will they ever it? chip? I got to jump in. We have 10 seconds. Yeah. Can you hold on during the break? I'm uh, happy to. Happy That's to so great. Okay, we, we have now four seconds left. I want to finish this conversation with Chip Roy. This is Debbie Georgias, Kirby Anderson, Lori Medina, America Can We Talk. Don't go away. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. The Center for Security Policy, based in Washington, D.C., is a national leader focused on the organization, management, and direction of public policy coalitions to promote U.S. national security. The Center is a special forces in the war of ideas dedicated to identifying opportunities and challenges likely to affect American security and acting promptly to ensure that they are the subject of focused national examination and effective action. The Center enlists support from executive branch officials, key legislators, and other public policy organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. The National Center for Policy Analysis brings together the best and brightest minds to tackle the country's most difficult public policy problems in healthcare, taxes, retirement, education, energy, and now national security. The NCPA works to develop and promote private free market alternatives to government regulation and control, solving problems by relying on the strength of competition in the private sector. As America's think tank, the NCPA wants to make sure you have access to simple, clear solutions to the issues that matter to you. Come get to know the NCPA at one of their events and join the conversation by following them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. To get policy solutions delivered straight to your inbox, sign up for the NCPA free email newsletter or subscribe to one of their policy blogs. To get involved with America's Think Tank, go online today to ncpa.org. The NCPA would love your support and you'll love being part of the solutions to America's challenges. So go to ncpa.org. That's ncpa.org. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. I want to tell you why I do this radio show, America Can We Talk. In my life, I've been a full-time attorney, a wife, and a stay-at-home mom, a volunteer at our kids' schools and sports teams, and a political activist. I've been active in many political campaigns, organizations, and events, from the grassroots level to elected leadership roles, and from volunteer to paid consultant. One theme that runs through my life since my days of majoring in political science in college has been a continually growing admiration for the idea of America. And that gets me to why I do this show. America is the most important political idea in the world. 
Everything good and great about America is the result of these ideas of America, things like the rule of law, limited power in the federal government, separation of powers, protection of individual rights of each citizen. So on my show, we talk about the events and stories of the day, always tied back to preserving the ideas of America. Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and, if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit FirstLiberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's FirstLiberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to FirstLiberty.org now. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. It's funny. I'm looking at my uh, extremely wonderful board operator, Greg, in there and couldn't see. I kept going in and okay. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. We have online Chip Roy and we're talking about the uh, non-repeal of Obamacare occurring in Washington. And we have our second hour roundtable, right right view roundtable. Kirby Anderson, Laurie Medina here and Kirby had a question. Yeah. So uh, Chip, if nothing else, two words, death spiral. Isn't it at least possible that because you don't have an individual mandate, the death spiral results because healthy people cut out of the pool. You have a sicker and sicker group in the pool. It gets more expensive. Isn't it possible to argue that Ryan Care or Trump Care right now could actually be worse than Obamacare? Well, that certainly is an astute observation that that was at the core of the problem with Obamacare. And I think, frankly, uh, that those that supported Obamacare knew that that may well happen. And, and that that was okay for them because they thought they could get to a solution of single payer. I think that that is one of our concerns with this current Republican proposal is that you are putting it on even, I think, more unsure footing in terms of how the finances will work. And we're going to then own this mess. And if you are unwilling to actually address the core market problem of not having competition in the market – by uh, getting rid of the regulations so that we can get lower cost health care, health insurance and health care for people. But also the other part to that is getting to where you have the ability for us to have options in the market to buy insurance, regardless of our employment status and across uh, state lines and all of the competition that needs to be injected into the market, then we're not going to get the kind of cost savings we need. So I think you're absolutely right. That, that, that is a, a real potential problem and why we need to address those concerns right now. And, and I think, Debbie, to your, to your point, we, we can address them. It is complicated, and the Senate rules are uh, not always as easy to navigate as, as you would prefer, but it can be done. I mean, it's simply having the will to do it. This is an interpretive question as to whether there is a budget impact of repealing these rules. And I know a lot of smart people who know Senate rules who believe that it is a strong argument that there is a budget impact if you're if, for any repeal of these regulations, and that all it would take is a parliamentarian to decide that, 
for the will of the Senate to bring this forward and the vice president sitting in the chair to determine that it, in fact, impacts the budget and therefore we can repeal all of the rules uh, or at least the vast majority of these regulations uh, that are driving up the costs. Hey, Chip. Uh, so the the activist in me is like just going crazy. Um, you know, my concern is, can we actually push back on Ryan and McConnell? And so I have to tell you, I was really buoyed to hear that your old boss, uh, Senator Cruz, was down at Mar-a-Lago uh, with with the kind of the, the gang with Mike Lee and Mark Meadows and and hopefully talking some sense. Do we have any hope? as conservatives, that we can push back on Ryan and McConnell on this disaster? Look, I think, and keep in mind, uh, you know, I, I work for TPPF, which is a C3, so, you know, we're talking about conservative policies here and, and um, you know, not getting into the politics, but I think from an activist standpoint and in terms of engaging, as we, as we all as Americans want to do, and that's totally fine, uh, absolutely there is hope that conservatives are going to stand up for conservative policy. Mark Meadows and those guys, their response – well, let's back up for a second for the listeners out there who may not know. The late last week, the Republican Study Committee, which was ostensibly the conservative part of the House for years, uh, had been skeptical of the bill, went down to the White House, got a few promises which do not materially impact and improve the bill, and then started saying, you know what, maybe we'll support it. But, a, but that got played up a lot. But here's the, the, the part that's up, that should give you hope, Lori, is that the House Freedom Caucus, Mark Meadows, and a fairly sizable block all said, no, 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 that's all a bunch of hype. There is a block of House members who recognize that if you don't change the cost structure and deal with the regulations and the fundamental core problems of Obamacare, we're not supporting this bill. Now, I don't know how long they'll stay, stick to that or how much pressure will be brought to bear on them, but they've got that problem in the House. And on the Senate, you have conservatives like Mike Lee, Rand Paul, mm-hmm. Ted Cruz. Mm-hmm. I think Tom Cotton has been pretty vocal about this, a few others. And you also have the squishy moderate side of the party who are complaining that this bill is too harsh with respect to <laughs> Medicaid. Uh, We're all laughing here. <laughs> three years. So that's, that's, you know, Senator Collins has said she probably can't support it as it is. I think a few other senators have have raised some concerns on that side of the Republican Party. So cobbling together the votes necessary to get this through, even on reconciliation, if you get through the House, is very difficult. And the last point I'll make here, and I hope I'm not filibustering to use my boss's favorite. (laughs) You're great. You go. Is My my last point that I'll make here on this is that, um, you know, these guys are missing the opportunity. I think President Trump could still take it, but they're missing the opportunity to win the minds and the hearts of, gen- of, a, of a generation of Americans that are frustrated with the status quo in Washington and the way the business as usual actually occurs there. And they want to just say, look, we want an approach that is market-driven, educate the American people on how we can get competition into healthcare. Look, right now, I've got a five-year-old and a seven-year-old. My five-year-old will be, will be six this week. We watch very little TV because, you know, it kind of kills the mind, I think. But we do watch a lot of sports, March Madness, you know, baseball, whatever. So they know a lot of the jingles for – all state, state farm, progressive, whatever. You know, ask them anything, bump, 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 bump. But ask them to tell me the jingles for Aetna or for Blue Cross or for United Healthcare. Crickets. Why? They don't need to compete for our business. And therein lies the problem. If we can equalize the tax treatment so employers don't get, or so that individuals get the same deduction that employers get, 
So you can be across the board. You can keep your insurance and move out from you know, when you leave a, a job and keep that insurance. You'll suddenly have a flood of options out there to buy insurance and keep it in your name. Drive the cost down by getting rid of the regulations. And now you get to a market that works. Yes, you regulate it on the margins. We regulate something. But housing, food, clothing, we don't – the reason you can go buy cheap food and get reasonable housing and get reasonable clothing is because there's endless opportunities in the market. Competition. Healthcare doesn't have that. Yep. Chip Roy, I think what should happen is that the GOP should hire you as a single spokesperson that everyone must go to to understand Obamacare. Honestly, you do a great job of explaining uh, just all all these. They can seem very complex when you start just reading them on paper, but you've done a great job tonight explaining the challenges we face. And and I'm very, very hopeful that uh, as you lay out the numbers, the the GOP, Ryan Kerbill, Rhino Kerbill, doesn't have the votes in the House or the Senate. So just maybe conservatives, if you keep on tweeting and posting and calling you can convince some of the folks who are on the edge to say no we need to do a bigger fuller repeal uh chip i can't thank you enough for calling you do a great job so if you're just tuning in chip roy from texas public policy foundation thank you so much thanks for having me on guys thanks okay take care all right you know what um chip roy is just so fun to talk to and would love to have him on we will have him on. actually he's on again in about three or four weeks um on other subjects but anyway so this is usually our cruise through the news segment we have four minutes so we're going to hit a couple stories and uh this is because i don't have enough time on air i want two hours every day i only get two hours a week so so what's with that so we have to do some stories like this so to start with this okay we'll start with chelsea because Lori wants to talk about chelsea clinton okay chelsea clinton who is the daughter of uh, Hill and Bill um, is their daughter. Anyway, she is permitting speculation to continue to be fueled about whether she might run for U.S. House. I guess she's eliminated Senate. She did not, but she may run for U.S. House uh, for Congress. And, you know, I, I just think, well, I'll, I'll let you, Lori, what's your thought okay, on that? Okay, well, first of all, bring it on, <laughs> sister. I would love it so much. First of all, uh, Hill and Bill, I'm sure, are pushing her out there because they're losing so much money uh, from all of their outrageous speaking And fees. stature. Right, and their stature and everything, that they have to push another Clinton out there. And they've, you know, I'm sure because of abortion and all these other things, there's there's only one baby. There's only one Chelsea. So they've got to they've got to push her out there. And so uh, she's the only one. Uh, they've got to make some money off of her. But listen, if she goes out there, this is going to be like, remember when Caroline... Remember when Caroline Kennedy, when they pushed her out there, and she was going to run for, well, I don't know, what was something in New York, yeah. and she was horrific. Remember, she couldn't string two sentences together. Yeah. She had no personality. Uh, she just had no grasp of politics or policy. This is going to be exactly like this. Chelsea Clinton, no personality. She's not. She's just going to well, expect them to give it to her, but it's going to be funny. I, I, I mean, it's it's. I think it's going to be great. I must say, on Chelsea in particular, she has uh, been on had several just positions given to her. Uh, the recent one being, she got put on the board of Expedia because of her vast right. knowledge of airlines or online, whatever it is she supposedly knows about. People think the name means something. I think on the left there is a lot of that celebrity mentality, but you still have to be charming. I, I think she's uncharming, and she doesn't have a resume that. I mean, she can spew out concerted, uh, you know, liberal talking points. I think she's not going to get very far either. And I just think it's almost cringy that they're encouraging her to do it. I almost feel sorry for her because I think she I will don't. flop. Okay. I don't. Okay. Lori is tough. <laughs> okay. Next cruise through the news thing. So we have a hearing starting tomorrow. Senate Judiciary Committee, first nominee for the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch. I was going to ask Kirby to go first. I don't know if you have any reactions to uh, Gorsuch nominee. Are you excited about this? You 
What do you think the, is going to happen there tomorrow? I think a lot of people think it is the best you can do. An individual that obviously has a view of originalism. We're going to hear a lot this week about textualism and those kinds of things. There's a lot of bloviating they're going to hear from the senators over the next couple of days, and you can turn that off. But I think before it's all through, he will be our next Supreme Court justice sitting on that court when, as we'll talk about in the next hour, I suspect that uh, particular appeal from Hawaii ends up there. And that will be very important for the uh, future of the Trump administration and for vetting and all the other issues we'll be talking about. Yeah, this is another reason I want him on the fast track up there, because you need another conservative up there before that Hawaii case gets there. I'll just throw in this two cents, and Lori, I want to say something about Gorsuch, but this is interesting. So the hearing is actually before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and um, when the New York Times reports the story, they first list Senator Dianne Feinstein— as the head of the committee, she actually, they're not in the majority. They kind of forgot. Okay, she's not. But she is the, uh, whatever she's, you know, the second in charge because she's the Democrat, the ranking Democrat. But the chairman of that committee, Senate Judiciary, is Chuck Grassley. And both of these people are 27 years old. No, I think they're both, what did I just tell you? 83. Yeah. I said it wrong. 83. So but I want to tell you something interesting, and then you can go on Gorsuch. We still have, oh, we have 35 seconds. You really can't. Okay, I'll just tell you one thing. Go ahead. So here's the story. So Grassley has been in the Senate since 1980, and he has worked with different applicants for the Supreme Court nominees. He actually helped get Stephen Breyer and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who are nominated by a Democrat president, Bill Clinton, help them to get Senate confirmation. Dianne Feinstein, on the other hand, serving Senate Judiciary, never voted for one single Republican nominee for the Supreme Court. And this, I tell you, my friends, tells you all you need to know about the way you fight in Washington. Democrats never surrender. We shouldn't either. Mm-hmm. Debbie George Addis, America Can We Talk. Don't go away.